You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. I want you to open the Bible this morning to Exodus 19. When you get there, uh, also put your other finger or another finger or a thump something in Exodus 33. As I was preparing to come, I, I felt, even in conversation with the guys, that one of the things that I wanted to focus on today was who we are as the people of God, you know, something about our identity, something about what it is that we, how the Lord sees us, how he defines us. The last time I was here, I actually spoke a little bit about this from Matthew 16, how the kingship of Jesus is directly connected to, to his building project. Uh, that when Peter calls him the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on that. Uh, a man with the revelation of Jesus' kingship is the foundation of what Jesus is building. Today, I want to focus on a, a very, uh, very important complementary aspect of our identity, and that is priesthood. And it's not something I normally talk about. But it's something the Lord was very, like, kind of deliberate about with shaping this idea in my mind for you. And then even this morning during our time in worship, in song, the nature of what we were singing, the nature of what Drew was exhorting us about is the, is the heart of priesthood. The, a, so, a solitary focus on the person of God. And I kind of want to draw this out in in a couple of texts for you this morning and really exhort you. Um, the, The first one here is in Exodus 19. This is such a critical passage because it it is one of those moments where the you know the people have come out of Egypt. They've they've put distance between themselves and the land of their captivity. They've been miraculously transported through a body of water on dry ground. How that happens is beyond me. It's a divine miracle. They come out the other side and one of the first things that happens is that God speaks to Moses on the mountain. He says this and I'm gonna pick it up in verse three. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out Uh, of the mountain saying, call to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Lord, in this time, this morning, we just want to offer you our hearts and our minds. We want you to speak. We want you to do what you want. And I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit right now to convey what is on your heart to this people, this precious people, this treasured possession of yours that you are calling to have the same mentality that we are going to discover in these texts. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
kingdom of priests. I think that um, we, we relate to this idea of kingship and priesthood equally poorly in our generation because we don't really have much of a frame of reference for it. We don't have a frame of reference for kingship because we live in a democracy where everybody gets their way. Or at least that's what we tell everyone when we're trying to get votes, right? You get what you want, vote for me, you know? This is the mentality. It's, it's people get to decide for themselves what's right. And they, again, I'm, I'm not knocking democracy. I agree with Winston Churchill who said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. So I'm not, it's not, not this isn't a political speech, but I'm saying our vision of, of politics and government and authority is this idea that the people get to say what's what. Well, kingship is the opposite. It's, one, it's when one person is invested with the authority to say what's what. So we sometimes have to get reoriented to the idea of kingship when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. Because some of us are still hoping that Jesus will come along and give us what we want. Did, did you guys hear that? Sorry, was that, did I say that out loud? Some of us are thinking that if we get born again, Jesus will just come along and give us what we want. But really when we get born again, we enter into a new realm where he's the one who gets what he wants. That's the kingdom is about. It's Jesus Christ executing his will and us giving ourselves to that will for his glory. Priesthood is another thing we're not quite connected with, uh, at least many of us maybe, but there may be some who grew up in a, in a Catholic church or Orthodox church or maybe Anglican where there is an idea of a priest who kind of mediates between you and God. Those of us who grew up more in Protestantism or Pentecostalism or whatnot, we're not used to thinking that way. You know, we have the idea that, you know, God uh, communicates directly with us. We don't need a go-between. And that's right. I mean, that's new, new covenant theology. It's very important. But some aspects of priesthood, we don't, I don't know that we always make the connection. I want us to make the connection today with what I believe to be the heart of the idea of priesthood. And that is that our number one priority our number one focus is simply hosting and stewarding the presence of God. It's at the core of priesthood. Moses is told by the Lord, this is what he wants. Exodus 19, 6, a kingdom of priests. That language is actually echoed throughout the New Testament. In places like First Peter, Revelation, and others where this idea of all of God's people being identified as priests is fundamental to what the Lord is developing over time. And I don't know what we know about the priests in the Old Testament, but I want to give you a picture of priesthood this morning. And I want to use Exodus 33 to do that. As we turn to Exodus 33, you know, in the Old Testament, you should know that there was only a certain tribe of descendants of Jacob who were given the right to be priests initially. And that was the tribe of Levi. These were fundamentally, you know, people given the responsibility. Now, this doesn't happen until later on in Exodus. And then in Joshua, we're, Joshua were, we're reminded of that as they possessed the land of Israel. Levi's descendants don't get any territory because their inheritance 
is the presence of God and the stewarding of that presence. So let, let's get into this story. I'm gonna connect some dots as we go, but Exodus 33 is an origins story. Any Marvel fans out there? You know what Marvel's doing now? They're telling origin stories. They're, they're, they're trying to get you to understand, well, how did, how did so-and-so become you know, this, this superhero? How did this happen? What's the, you know, what's the backstory? This is the big deal. This is what we're doing now. But this is an origin story for the people of God. It's an origin story for Israel in the Old Testament, but because of that, it's also an origin story for us who are the people of God in the new covenant. Not to the exclusion of Jews who believe the gospel, but just in addition, there are Gentiles that are joined to God's people. It's an origin story in Exodus 33, and it comes off of the heels of a tragic moment. In Exodus 32, Moses has been on the top of a mountain for 40 days. He is interacting with the glory of God. God is giving him all kinds of instructions and He's relating to him the terms of the covenant. The people get impatient, which I mean, let's be honest, 40 days is a long time for a guy who goes up on a mountain and nobody knows what's going on up there. I mean, it's a month and a half almost. Like, where is old Moses? You know, like, what's going on? And of course, there are some elements in the camp of the Israelites who have had enough. Maybe they think he's selfish. Maybe they think he's gone off and been killed by a cougar or a coyote or something. I mean, nobody knows because he's up on a mountain. Him and Joshua went up there and there's no communication. And so they start to get irritated. They want to get on with things. And so some people, you know, rabble up the crowd and they're like, hey, we're going to fashion for ourselves a God and we're going to get on with things. So they rope Aaron into this. And Aaron collects a bunch of gold from people, smelts it down, and fashions a golden calf. And they have a festival to this calf, filled with all kinds of debauchery and everything else, so much so that the noise from the party can be heard up on the mountain. And bless Joshua, he's such a positive guy. He's like, it's, it's war. That's the, they're fighting down there. And Moses is like, no, it's not war. They're partying. And he starts walking down the mountain and he sees when he gets down there this uh, immoral festival to uh, an Egyptian god. And he throws the tablets that he just received from the Lord onto the ground. And he goes down there and, and he confronts Aaron and says, how did this happen? Aaron says, it's not my fault. They made me do it. I collected gold, I threw it into the furnace and out came this calf. I mean, that's literally Aaron's language. Not taking responsibility, kind of passing the buck. He's like, you know, whatever. And then there's judgment. The calf is burned with fire and then turned into dust and then people made to drink it. And then 3,000 people are, are killed as a result in judgment. Guys, that's not how you want to start things off. You know, you start a new country, you know, just kind of getting everybody ready. You don't want to start off with, with this kind of a moment, but that's exactly how they start. This is like one of the first scenes after crossing the Jordan, you know, after the Exodus and all that. It's like, this is how we're going to start? 
And so you pick up there at the beginning of chapter 33. All this is just played out. And the Lord says to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of Israel, uh, brought out of the land of Egypt into the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now stop right there. So far, this is amazing. I mean, up to that point, everything God says is great. He says, go. He says, I'll take care of all of the people that are in your way. All the different ites. Take care of them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send an angel. He's going to go in front of you, and he's going to take care of all of the opposition. Now, I don't know if you guys remember some of these stories about angels in the Old Testament. Uh, there's one, and I think it's in 2 Kings or something like that, where one angel, one, wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. So he's telling, God is telling Moses, I'll send an angel, I'll wipe out your opponents, you can go into the land that I promised to your descendants. It's flowing with milk and honey. Now, apologies to the lactose intolerant among us. You might not think of this as something positive, but in, in olden days, they thought of this as, oh, we, we've hit the jackpot. Because if it's flowing with milk, that means there's all kinds of cattle. And we're not going to lack anything. Honey is this, the sweetener of the ancient world. Before there was stevia, before there were, whoa, before there were all the healthy things, before there were all the, you know, this is the way you sweeten stuff. It's flowing, it's, there's no limits. It's flowing with it. So up to this point, you're like, let's go. I mean, God's basically time. I'll give you everything I said you would. Now just go, oh, but Bible, just one catch. The catch is this. It's the end of verse three. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way because you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had told Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. I, okay, I want you to think about where we're at now and the options that are on the table. Okay, option one is you go, an angel precedes you, wipes out your enemies, brings you into the land that you are promised, you get to enjoy milk and honey as long as the day is, and you receive everything God promised your ancestors. Option one. Option two. God comes along with you and kills you all. (laughs) Is this even a choice right now? I mean, these are the options on the table. There's no door number three. This is it. Here's your option. Take it all without God, or number two, take God and he might just wipe you all out. 
This is the choice that's before Moses, before the people. It's one of those moments, right? This is why it's an origin story. Because whatever they decide right now is gonna mark them forever. The, the choice right now is gonna mark the trajectory of this people. Well, let's see what happens. There's a little interlude here, verses seven through uh, 11, about Moses and the tent of meeting and how he used to go out and how everybody used to pay attention to that. The story kind of picks up in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up the people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. All right, let's pause there. I don't know if you're like me, but I read that and I'm like, Moses, chill. <laughs> I mean, Moses is talking back to God in such a way that suggests that God has lost his mind. I mean, it's kind of what he's saying. Like, you, I'm sorry, what now? You told me to go up, you didn't let me know who's going. Some angel, I don't know any angel. I know you, and you told me I found favor in your sight. You told me that. I don't, I'm not looking to, you know, I didn't come out of Egypt to follow some angel. I came out of Egypt because of you. You remember that in the bush and all that? The bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. What happened to that? That's why I'm out here. Not because of some angel. And then he throws this, considers it's your people. You know what that sounds like? You ever have an argument, parents, about something your kid did? And the woman goes to the guy, you know, that's your son. Like that? That's kind of what's going on. Moses is like, I did not start this. This is not my, you're not gonna put this on me now. Look it, they belong to you. You can't come up here, tell them, oh, lead the people. They're yours. This is your business. I didn't start this, and I'm sure as heck not going to finish this without you. Now, this is my paraphrase. So don't go creating doctrines about this. <laughs> he said God was like an angry woman. Like, listen, I'm just trying to tell you, Moses is like feeding, giving some feedback and he just doesn't, he's not okay with options one and two. And he's pressing the Lord. He's trying to tell him, like, this is not okay. This is not what I signed up for. I was minding my own business on the backside of a mountain. You came to me. You said you had a plan. You said I'll lead you into a land. You said. He's kind of putting it back on the Lord. And on the one hand, it kind of sounds a little disrespectful. But on the other hand, I think there's something about it that the Lord liked. In fact, I think this whole thing is a test. He's saying, well, Dr. Jeff, it doesn't say that. Well, I know, but let's read what happens next. You, you might maybe come my way a little bit. So the Lord says, verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What that phrase means, I will give you rest, 
like if you keep reading in the, in the Pentateuch and into the book of Joshua, to give the people a rest means to, to get them situated in the land. It, it means to do exactly what he said he was gonna do. Eliminate enemies, give them victory, settle them in the place of, of the promised land. It's to fulfill everything. So it, in my view, it was a test. It was an offer that God was making to Moses and through him the people. What did they want more? What did they, see, to me, it's an origin story because it's asking a question, what do you value more? Do you value the, the fulfillment of promises? Do you value the, the reception of inheritance, the, the defeat of enemies, the, the, the establishing of your own country and your own territory? Or, or do you value me more? That's the test. I think Moses passed the test because he was not going to, he was not gonna give in to just getting the promises without the one who made them. And he said, I'm not doing it. It's essentially what he's saying, this isn't gonna happen. And the Lord said, okay. It's kind of like one of those moments where the Lord is like, okay. Got it. it it's like a, a it is, it is setting the tone for everything else that's coming after this in Israel's story when Moses makes this statement and God says, you bet, I'm going and I'll give you rest. And then Moses makes this statement. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, do you know where they were when he said that? It's not like they were in Palm Springs or something. It's, I mean, it's not like they were in, you know, it's, oh, it's so nice around here. I mean, you're talking about their wilderness. They're in this arid, mountainous region where in order to eat meat, God has to bring a bunch of quails down to their level and fly over and they have to knock them out of the air with tennis rackets and whatnot. Like this is, there's nothing out there. And Moses is literally making a statement. If you're not coming, we'll just stay here. There's nowhere to go. We got nothing. Forget about promised land. If you're not a part of this equation, we're not moving. Because wherever we go, we're destined for nothing. We're destined for uselessness. There is no purpose behind us unless you are with us. How shall it be known? Verse 16 says, that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The distinction between us and anybody else is the Lord himself. God is the distinguishing mark of his people. You know, we have wonderful doctrines in Christianity. I've studied many of them and I'm grateful for them. But they're all hollow if there's not a real God who dwells in the midst of his people. The distinction between the people of God and all the other people are, is God himself. That is the issue. That's what Moses is aware of. If you're not coming, we've lost our uniqueness which is another way of saying we've lost our identity 
and we've lost our purpose. All of that is wrapped up in the person of Yahweh traveling with this band of people who at this point in time have no home. They're wandering through wilderness. To what end? To inhabit a land, partly, but to inhabit a land without the God who's giving it to them is not the plan. Moses is aware, he pushes back. God relents and says, I will come. Moses says, good, because you're the issue here. You are the issue. It's not the promises, it's not the land, it's not the inheritance. Grateful as I am for those things, Moses says, you are the issue. You are the mark that makes us who we are. Guys, I submit to you that this is what it means to be a priest. It is to realize this, that the the possession and the stewarding of the presence of God is the key to who we are and what we're called to do in everyday life, as well as in a big macro sense, our mission across the centuries is to host him, is to become that people that in in our own private life and in our life together, that we are organized around and centered on the presence of the Lord, his person. And all we are after is rooted in that. And not even necessarily promises. Not even necessarily words that that God's given us. Not even necessarily some sense of calling or destiny that we feel as an individual. Like all those things can be good. All those things can be healthy, but they can never be the center. They can never be the heart of what we do. Because to be a priest, to steward the presence of the Lord is gonna cost us something. And we know that because of the story, the people who become priests, I mentioned this earlier, the tribe of Levi. Ultimately, in the book of Joshua, the Lord leads them in to take the land. And through various battles and things like that, they actually conquer many of the tribes and, they, and they, they divide up the territory into 12 parts. But get this, Levi and his descendants do not get any land. Now this is the crazy part because that was the whole point. That was the whole promise of going into the land is that everyone gets their own land and you can farm on it and you can build houses and you can be prosperous. But for Levi, the answer was no. You're not getting land. Instead, you're gonna do this. You're gonna tend to the fire before Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's your inheritance. See, for Levi to tend to God's presence, it cost him something else. It meant he had to go without other things. Like all the other, I mean, you look at that, you're like all the other 11 sons of Jacob and the two sons of Joseph that got territory. Levi, no, you don't get territory. What you get is that responsibility around the tent. It's like even, his, even this allotment, even this assignment is a prophetic statement, right? So when God says, I want a kingdom of priests, what he's saying is I want a people who will gladly release anything else to steward my presence. I want a people who even though they may have a right to something else, they let it go 
in order to host me, in order to invest their time and their energy in the cultivation of worship. Levi's responsibility is a sign to us. It's a calling. It's a vision of who we are as a people. It's, it's prefigured. Another story in the Old Testament. You remember the story of, of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac? Remember this, Genesis chapter 22? I want you to think about that story. I, Abraham, he lived for decades in the middle of a contradiction. What was the contradiction? His name. What does Abraham mean? Anybody mean, remember? Father of many nations. He had no children. And he's father of many nations for decades. It, it, would, be, it would be like someone who, who, who doesn't have a hair on his head and, you came in, and his name was Curly. And every day, it's like, hey, Curly, how's it going? Hey, Curly, what's up? Hey, hey, Goldilocks, what's up? Like every day, hearing this word that contradicts reality, every day he walks out of the tent. Good morning, father of many nations. <sighs> Again, every day, for years, for decades, living in a contradiction. God said this, but it is nowhere to be found. Nowhere. And then he tries to manufacture a fulfillment of his name. And, and that ends badly. Finally, he's 99 years old, 100 years old, How, and he's old, beyond the age of reproduction. And he finally has a son, Isaac. And now Isaac is the key to everything. He's the key to all the promises. He's the key to the inheritance. He's the key to the covenant. It's all invested in this one child. And then you know what God says to Abraham? He says, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. I don't, what do you do with that? What do you, the entire key to the future that Abraham's life has been designed to generate. And God says, give him to me. Now, some Jewish scholars think that Isaac might have been as old as 22 in this scenario. So not a little kid. He's old enough to know how sacrifices work because as they're going up to the thing, he's like, where's the ram? He's like, yo, pops, where is the ram? What are we doing up here? And you guys know how the story ends. You know, God interrupts the sacrifice of Isaac and it's, but, but I gotta tell you, the language that Abraham used when he was about to go up to the mountain, he told his servant to stop here. He said, my son and I will go up to worship. What is he doing right there? He, he's embracing the role of a priest in that moment. He is about to worship through sacrifice. He is about to go up to God and lay the most important thing in his world before God and put it to death. Guys, being called to be a priest is, 
is, is an invitation, yes, it's an invitation to steward the presence of God. It's an, it's an open door to the glory of his presence. But it's also like a, man, it's like a pruning fork or a, a pruning hook that will, it's gonna have to cut away things in our lives. Anything that competes with the supremacy of Jesus and his person, it may cost us something. It may, it, it may cause us to have to make choices that are hard and they're difficult, painful, and they're gonna challenge maybe us to the core of who we are, what we thought God wanted, what we thought God said, but ultimately, we have to choose him above everything else. We have to make this decision to become priests who, who, who treasure the person of God above everything else. There's a story in the Gospels that I think illustrates this as well. Matthew 19, Jesus has an interaction with a man who on the surface of things looks very interested in what Jesus has to offer. It says in verse 16, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said, why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now we can debate the accuracy of his assessment of his testimony, but Jesus didn't do that. Either he didn't debate it and the guy was a genuinely good guy or he didn't care. Either way, Jesus turns the focus somewhere else. So you've, you've done the things that were listed in the Torah. You've, okay, I'll give you that you've done X, Y, and Z. I'm not gonna debate that with you. But there's something else Jesus points to. He says, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I'm telling you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I, I just want you to think about the scene and I want you to connect the dots with what we read in Exodus. Essentially, that, that young man's quandary was the same one that faced Moses back in Exodus 33. Because he had what many people believed was the evidence of a righteous life in Jesus' day. He had wealth, he had, he had material possessions, and apparently based on testimony, he had a virtuous life. Again, which Jesus does not dispute but there's something else, Jesus says. There's something that, that matters more than, than your track record, your personal history, 
And what you have, and that what, that, what matters more, is that you come with me. It's a very similar idea from Exodus 33, where, where God is telling Moses to make a choice. Either you, come, either you want me to come with you, or you can go get the things you want. And in Matthew's gospel, that same choice is, that's why it's a foundation story. It's an origin story in Exodus 33. The rest of the Bible is gonna pull on this tension. God's people are gonna consistently find themselves in places where they have to choose again. Every generation, every, every moment, the decision is gonna have to be lived out. Am I going to do this? Am I going to be wed? Am I going to be covenant partner bonded with the Lord? Or am I going to be married to promises and things and fulfillments of, of whatever? This, this is the fundamental concern. Do, do his promises mean more to us than his person? Now, in the end, it's not a contradiction, Right? Because when we cling to him, he cares for us, he keeps his word, it's not an issue. But if the promises matter more, then we become like this rich young man and we're afraid. We're afraid of what the consequences would be of us laying down our Isaac, laying down our possessions, laying down our call, laying down our perception of our destiny, even if it's something God said, if he's asking for it in that moment, then you give it to him. Jesus teaches us something in Matthew 6, verse 21. He says, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. You know, if we're gonna become a kingdom of priests, we have to become a people whose treasure is the Lord and the Lord alone. I'm gonna ask the team to come back if you guys can, Scott. I wanna, you know, we were singing this song earlier. Nothing else, nothing else will do, I just want you. Guys, this can be an actual moment and statement of our identity as priests before God. But it's also a test and it's also a challenge. It's also a moment where we have to ask ourselves, is that real? Or, or are we in a place of saying, you know what, I'll, I'll serve you, Lord, as long as. I'll serve you, Lord, if. I'll serve you, Lord, when. And, and you, we come to this place where we might be keeping our worship of God hostage. It's, we're holding it hostage until God does what we want. But priests don't function that way. They, they steward and they tend to the Lord in his presence and it doesn't matter whatever else they have to lay down. It doesn't matter what they have to sacrifice. It doesn't matter what they have to set aside. But this is the issue of our priesthood, this issue of our calling and our identity is to be okay with that. And to be able to say, God, whatever you're saying, I will do. Because I treasure you more than I treasure anything else. I don't want my heart to be somewhere else other than in you. Teach me to do that. Teach me to treasure you. To hold you dear. So that it's not some, 
some moment in time, but it's a consistent way of life. To give ourselves to the Lord, it, it's a privilege to, to host his presence. It, it is an honor, but it doesn't come without a sacrifice. So the whole image of the priesthood in the old covenant is connected to death. If you think about this, like worship in the Old Testament requires the death of things. It requires the, the, the killing of animals and the, the, the spilling out of blood as a sign that one day a lamb will come to execute God's purposes, but then he'll raise up a whole people just like him. In the revelation you find that we're the people of the lamb, which means we exercise victory in the place of sacrifice. Jesus on the throne of God is a lamb looking as if he had been slain. He still to this day bears the marks on his physical body, his hands and his feet. I wanna invite you to stand this morning. I believe God is calling for people who bear his name among you. I believe your heart to host his presence is real. But I wanna invite you to consider whether or not it's being tested. Whether or not there are certain ways in your life where you, you would find a loophole. Like there would be an opening not for it not to cost you something but you could still stay faithful. In the end, there's only one thing that matters, and that's him. It's his voice, and it's his heart. And my prayer for you guys this morning is that you would enter into this place of saying like Moses, like nothing else matters. You are the difference maker, Lord. You're what makes us unique different from anybody else on the face of the planet. Not just the promises, not just the words, not just the inheritance, but you. And that whatever it costs, whatever he asks, you will happily lay it down. Because you know in the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters. You know, just like we were singing before. And I want to invite you this morning to take an inventory. I want to invite you to ask yourself, is that do I really mean that? Nothing else will do? I, I want you to ask yourself this morning, what about, am I, am I actually living to see a certain thing happen? Am I actually living just to see a certain promise fulfilled? Am I, am I, am I actually doing this because I feel like if I do it, then God will give me X, Y, and Z? Don't make this a transactional issue, guys. Don't make this a quid pro quo. Don't make this, I'll do this, God, if you do that. What if we became this priesthood? I said, I don't care whatever else happens, Lord. Just be with us. Just be with us. He's the most fascinating being in the cosmos. We're going to look at him for the rest of eternity and not get bored. Ever. Man, if we could just see it now. Some of us are walking around, got lots of heavy burdens around our necks. You know why? Because we're, we're not free of expectations yet. We're still expecting God to do X, Y, and Z. What if we would just be satisfied with him? What if he was our inheritance? What if he was our treasured possession?
There was a man Jesus talked about who found a treasure buried in a field. And you know what he did? He went, by, he went back home, he sold everything he had and he bought the field. Because he knew like whatever he found in the dirt, if the dirt belonged to him, the treasure would also belong to him. It sounds ironic and he bought a plot of dirt. He found stuff in the dirt. He bought the dirt because whatever he finds in the dirt goes to him. Guys, I, just think about this today. Are we ready to say like, Lord, I'm re- I release everything to you. Expectations and dreams, words and callings, destinies and promises. Lord, they're all in your hands. The, the only way, the only lock guarantee that you'll fulfill your promises is if I just cling to you and you're gonna do it your way. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.